Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile AF, the podcast. This is episode 106 called Ruhi. Today's episode is sponsored by Vios Fertility Institute. You guys, I've had the pleasure of working with Vios for Fertility Rally, and I cannot say enough good things about how much Vios gets it when it comes to infertility, fertility, and the patient experience. Vios is built on a foundation of patient-centered care, evidence-based medicine, and innovative technology. They have clinic locations throughout the country and patients from around the globe. And as a patient, you'll notice a difference from your very first phone call to the team celebration of your positive pregnancy test and everything in between. Bios physicians are board certified and fellowship trained reproductive endocrinologists and infertility specialists. Many of them have also experienced fertility treatment or a struggle to build their own family firsthand. The Bios Fertility Institute team works to create an individualized plan best suited for a patient's emotional, physical, and financial needs. I got to know Vios first through their social media handle, and I'm super impressed by their commitment to the fertility community overall. Through Instagram, Facebook, their blog, and other social media, they offer great resources and credible fertility education. Check them out in all the social places at Vios Fertility, and check out the blog on their website, viosfertility.com. To learn more about BIOS, to take advantage of that education and fertility information, or to schedule your first appointment, visit biosfertility.com. That's V-I-O-S-F-E-R-T-I-L-I-T-Y.com. Thanks, BIOS. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you guys that tickets are available right now for Fertility Rally Live, which is the event that Blair from Fab Fertility and I are throwing on April 17th. It's an all-day event, it's virtual, and we have got tons of amazing speakers, big names from this community and beyond, and we are here for all of it, and we hope you can join us. So definitely check it out at fertilityrally.com. Tickets are available now. All right, guys, I am so, so excited about today's guest, Dr. Ruhi Jelani. In our community, Ruhi is an icon. She's what I'd like to call a superwoman. She is just as brilliant as she is beautiful. She is a reproductive endocrinologist and an infertility specialist. She's an outspoken advocate, a mother, a wife, Miss India International, and she uses her ginormous social media following, almost 100,000 followers, to reach both her followers and empower her patients and the TTC community worldwide with her unique and inspiring voice. One more thing, Ruhi is also currently undergoing IVF treatment. So we recorded this episode a couple of weeks ago after she had just undergone a frozen embryo transfer and was in the middle of her two-week wait. I'm not gonna let you guys know what happened. You can look at her Instagram if you want a follow-up. But for now, I would listen to this story, which is incredible and starts with her diagnosis of PCOS when she was just 12. So I'm thankful to now call Ruhi a friend. I'm so glad she is out in the field fighting the good fight for women every single day. Ruhi, you are amazing. And without further ado, this is Ruhi's infertility story. (music) 
Hi, Ruhi. Thank you so much for doing this on a Sunday. I know you're so busy and I really appreciate you taking the time. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. So I want to start with when you were 12, this is what I read. And I feel like you told me this another time as well. You walked into Dr. Jabmoni's office Yes. And you were intrigued with all the stuff that you saw in this person's office. So can we, can you tell me about that? And it kind of yeah. kicked off your medical intrigue in your career. Yeah. It actually started with my own lack of a cycle or irregular cycle, whatever you'd call it at that point, that led me to a reproductive endocrinologist's office. And at that point, they did way more than just fertility. They did like everything because it's such a new field. Now it's like the late 80s, early 90s. And I walked in and she had, you know, when you had posters and really no social media to learn. So there's posters all over her wall of stuff that you're not supposed to talk about, you know, your private parts. And right. <laughs> that's what we called them back then. At yeah, least totally. <laughs> so yeah, I was really like, why am I here? What's going on? Is there something wrong with me? Like, you know, just more intrigued as to why I was there and what kind of stuff is there. So finally I asked her, I'm like, well, what do you do? What, you know, what, what kind of doctor you are? And I think because that, that was her bread and butter. And that's what we do mostly is her. It was very simple. She goes, I help make babies. That's how it all started. And was that the moment where you're like, Ooh, I'm, I'm intrigued. I want to go down that road. Oh my God. Yeah. I was just baffled. I think it took me like, to the, I still remember like sitting in her room saying, you make babies? Like, wait a minute. I thought mm. God made babies. Like, how do you make babies? How does this happen? I literally said that. I was like, how, how do you make a baby? Mm-hmm. And at that time she was like, oh, I take, she said two cells. She kept it kosher for me. She goes, I take two cells and I put them together and I make a little baby and I put it back. And she goes, and very nonchalantly, I still remember her saying, you're going to need help one day, but it'll be easy. You're going to pop a pill and it's going to work for you. Oh, wow. Okay. So what was going on with you physically that you were there in the first place? You said irregular cycle. Yeah, I had um, irregular cycles and she had, she had diagnosed me with PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, mm-hmm. which at that time, different diagnostic criteria. So I think I was shuffled around a bit more than I hope. I hope people aren't shuffled around as much as I'm shuff- I was shuffled around. Unfortunately, I still see it a lot that I'm the first one now telling somebody in their thirties and their late twenties that, Hey, you have PCOS and they're like completely baffled that I'm saying it. So mm-hmm. she was the first one to diagnose me with polycystic ovarian syndrome and not just shoo me away and say, Oh, you're too skinny or you're anorexic or you have an eating disorder or, you know, you're in too many activities. Mm-hmm. Cause had you heard those things from other doctors? Yeah, but okay. she was actually my last stop out of multiples. And it started with a pediatrician, then a family practitioner, uh-huh. then an internist. And I was just kind of, you know, like one doctor would shuffle me to another doctor and then to another doctor. And there was no answers. Then no one was saying, this is why this is happening. Everyone would say, oh, you can fix it. Just get on birth control to my mom. And one, that wasn't going to happen, you know, coming from like a very conservative family. She goes, why would she need that? No. Mm -hmm. So she was more interested in the why. And so she kept asking and asking everybody until finally her older brother said, oh, you know what? She needs a reproductive endocrinologist. So go here. Mm -hmm. Do you know if you're anybody else in your family, like your mom, for example, had any sort of reproductive issues or was it hereditary? She didn't at all. So I think it truly came as a shock for me. My 
the reason I went to Javamoni is because she actually treated my uncle's wife, who is not blood related to us, so for infertility. And he's the one who had said, go to her. She does endocrinology and she can probably help you guys. It was a big moment, big moment in finally having a diagnosis, no longer being forced to eat and my mom watching me because she thought it was an anorexic. It was a moment, like not at that point, it didn't click to me when she said, oh, you're going to need help. It now resonates like after needing help and after having kids, like, oh, that's what she meant. I never mm-hmm. realized that piece, I guess, stuck with me. What really at that point was you can make babies. Like, this is crazy. Like, I want to make babies for somebody. I want to, I want to be you. I remember saying, I want to be you. Yes. That's so cool. And I'm so glad that you had such a cool like role model and somebody that took you seriously. So what were they doing for you treatment wise? Did you end up going on birth control? I didn't for a while. Cause I think for my mom, it was okay. Long as, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. Nothing I need to know, uh, worry about. They didn't now how we look at PCOS is we look at as more of a complete disorder of your whole life that it can impact you at different states and it can impact no matter what you're trying to do. I think back then it was more only if you're trying to get pregnant, you don't really need a period. I just Mm -hmm. don't remember saying you don't really need a period. I don't think that focus on the uterine cancer and hyperplasia and irregular bleeding, all of that was focused on as much. So I didn't, my mom had her solution and answer I didn't care. Like, you know, you tell a little girl, like, you're not going to get a period. I was like, okay, this is amazing. Who totally. Wants- I'm curious, what, how was your, like, how was sex ed for you growing up? Because we talk about this a lot and I'm, you know, I think it is improving now with when we have, you know, great REIs and people like you in the field who are working hard to make sure that young women and young guys know a lot more about their reproductive systems than they did. Like when I was growing up, for example, when it was just, you know, pounded into my brain, don't get pregnant. It's so easy to get pregnant, have sex once you're going to get knocked up. You know, it's, do you feel like it's changing? I think it's changing. I hope it's changing, but to be very honest, I trained and worked in Michigan for a really long time Mm -hmm. and believe it or not, it is still not allowed. You're not allowed to teach um, Mm. sex ed. Wow. Uh, Yeah. So unfortunately, no, but, but what is changing is access, right? Like kids no longer learn in school about this stuff. Mm -hmm. They learn on TikTok and social media and their friends. And even if you don't allow your kids to be on social media and TikTok, they have friends who are, and that's how they're learning. And I think it's so amazing to see my friends who do more general OBGYN kind of like teach about, you know, like hygiene and what's right, what's wrong. And what are you, you know, like all of the stuff that we never knew about. We only learn about don't have sex. If you have sex, you're going to get pregnant and that's it. Mm-hmm. But not about your cycle, not about what it means. Like hormonal headaches. What is that? Like, I remember suffering from insane headaches in high school and I didn't know it's because I constantly had like these high estrogen levels. My acne was horrible. I just kept getting put on like, here's benzoyl peroxide. Here's Clearzol at that time, Clearzol mm-hmm. pads, but no one addressed the underlying issue. And I really wish somebody would have like, Hey, this is all part of your PCOS. It's funny because my daughter, she gets so much of her information on TikTok, most of it actually. That was the question I had for you too, is that you're very active on social media. And I know we talked about this on our Rally Live panel last fall as well, that you know, you are really using it to your advantage to 
you know, spread education, but also kind of make it palatable and entertaining. So tell me when you started with social media and how it's impacted your relationship with your patients and just medicine in general for you. And started when I was, I transitioned my fellowship to what's called a WARHER, a Women's Reproductive Health Research Grant, W-R-H-R, and you call it a WARHER. Okay. Uh, so it's a K-12, it's an institutional grant that's awarded based on the research you're doing. And my passion was fertility preservation and ovarian aging. Especially, you notice it more with gonadotoxic therapy, like chemotherapy, mm-hmm. but the pathophysiology, meaning how it happens is very similar to patients who have DOR, diminished reserve or premature ovarian failure. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was studying. So I was just like, I'm going to solve the world. I'm going to fix this. We're going to figure out these biomarkers. We're going to help predict this for other females. And, you know, so excited, like as a fellow, as this young, uh, you know, like I'm going to change the world feeling. And I think that was my first hit with God, there's so much more to medicine that we don't really see that goes on behind the politics behind, you know, what it means to actually work, like to be a grown up and work, like where your paycheck comes from and Mm -hmm. how do you allocate your time and your resources and what the department needs versus what your research needs versus what your patients needs. And I think it was a lot. It was a lot for me to take on at a very young age. It was not what I envisioned. And so I was like, this is not, this is not what I wanted. It sounded really grand and great on paper, but it's a lot it's a lot for me to do. And I don't get to do what I love most, which is patient care. Mm. So I very quickly, and I also had two very young kids back to back after my, a lot of infertility and uh, after trying for a long time. So it was time to kind of move back to Chicago where we had more help and more care. So we moved back and I joined private practice and, but I joined a practice which believed in that, that belief that this is, there's no one right way to do it. And we still don't know everything about fertility mm-hmm. and we have to continue to evolve and focus on research. So I met Angie over coffee, absolutely fell in love with her vision and the fact that she wants to evolve and be innovative and has a vision. So I continued my research. I became the head of research and education. We have a bunch of pre-meds, med students, fellows and residents under us. We do research. And I get to practice clinical medicine. Mm-hmm. And so Angie was, is, she's the founder of Vios, correct? She is the founder of Okay, Bios. right. So here I am now, hopefully trying to change the world with, with <laughs> research and presenting papers and abstracts and book chapters and kind of living out what I always envision, like figuring out the why, because ultimate goal is not to have infertility patients, but educator demographic. So they learn to preserve their fertility, then they understand it. And that's how it transitions. So when I moved to Chicago, I said, well, how do I impact my patients? How do I teach them? Like what mm-hmm. was missing when I was a patient? And it's sad to think that I was actually a fertility doctor and I didn't know. I didn't know what time you take these medications. I didn't know what needle felt better than the other needle. I don't know why you feel so overwhelmed when you got this big box of medications, like why I was constantly crying. Mm -hmm. I didn't know like the process of fertility. I knew this science, but as I'm sure you can attest to, and I can attest to it, the science does not always follow your body. Everyone's body is so different. Right. So it's a whole different field of medicine. And unfortunately, the only way I learned that was actually being a patient as everyone kept saying, oh, you have so many eggs. Mm -hmm. And then all your, all my 40 eggs became one number. I'm like, what happened to all of them? Mm -hmm. You know, so 
that that aspect of fertility, I truly didn't learn. So my goal became once I once I regained that control, left that institution, moved to Chicago with Angie was how do I empower my patient? How do we educate? Most of it came from, okay, well, and your new consult, this is what we do and this is what we teach. But what about before I meet them? How do they know that they're going to need to come see me, right? Like I waited a really long time before I actually went to the doctor. I self-treated a lot, which is quite embarrassing. Then I asked my friends to treat me. Uh, Mm -hmm. But how do I tell these patients who don't have that access, like this is what they should look for, that this is when they should be concerned. And that's how my kind of my social media started. And then I started opening up more and more about my own journey and my why behind it. Right. Okay. So can we backtrack please just to like where, you know, I want to talk about when you started to try to have kids and what happened. I'd love to get into some of that if you don't mind. So just kind of backing up a little bit, what, what happened when you and your husband started to try? Did you have problems from the get-go because of the PCOS? Uh, Yeah. So uh, because I remembered her saying, now it all came back, you're going to pop a pill and it's going to work. I was like, it's so simple, right? Like, yeah, you're like, where's that pill? (laughs) Yeah. I was like, I'm not going to see a doctor. I'm going to take a fertility pill. And by that time I knew it was ovulation induction. So I was like, I'm going to take my fertility pill and I'm going to get pregnant. So of course I had my best friend call in my pill and then we tried and then it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And then the pill? Like, uh, it was at that time Clomid. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So then I took some more Clomid and then it didn't work. And then I took it some more and then it didn't work. And then I was like, oh, okay, okay. I must be doing this wrong. You know? So then I started asking and my attendings at that time who didn't know I was trying. I was like, why do you give it on day three and not day five or day two? And of course my attending goes, oh, and patients who it's failed. And sometimes you can take the pill a little bit earlier. So you recruit more follicles. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. So oh then- God. So you're like self-medicating, like yeah, you said. Com- completely self-medicating. What, why didn't you like, feel like you wanted to make the leap and like get start becoming a patient for real? I think it was ingrained in my head that it was going to work. Okay. And it had to work because and every time like anyone would scan me, they would literally say, oh, your tubes look so beautiful. You look, your ovaries look so good. You know, like here I I am a doctor. So of course I'm having everyone scan me, telling them that they're practice scanning. They have no clue what I'm actually trying to do, but I'm just telling my friends, oh, just practice scan on me. Oh, do a saline on me. You know, so that's what they think they're doing. So I was like, oh, this is going to work. Everyone says I have everything that I need. Mm -hmm. My doctor said, I'm going to pop a pill, which is my letrozole and it's going to work. And unfortunately it didn't work. Mm -hmm. After six months of doing this back and forth, I finally ended up going to an OB, also my friend. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what, can you give me letrozole? And right around then, around 2012-ish, no, 2011-ish, that PCOS trial came out where it said letrozole was a little bit better for PCO patients Okay, instead of Clomid. So then we switched to letrozole, tried that for a couple cycles, didn't work, and then went to another, actually finally mustered the courage to go to an RE. And I told her like my limitations and what I wanted. And of course I was like, well, the IUI is first step, right? And she humored me. She was like, yeah, you can do an IUI. So I did an IUI once again, I won't call her out, but with that education, because Mm -hmm. if she would have told me, Hey, normal sperm, if you've done this, like for a year now, you're going to need something more. The IUI is really not going to add much. So 
I did more IUIs. It wasn't working. Mm-hmm. I was getting biochemicals. Like I would test at home, of course, you know, mm-hmm. you pee, pee in the trigger, you pee out the trigger, all sorts of fun stuff. I was doing all sorts of craziness. Right. And I would get pos- faint positives. I would get biochemicals. I would check, get to like a 20 or a 30, my beta, and it would fall again. And I went back back to her after failed IUIs and she's like, you need IVF. And mm-hmm. I was like, no way. How do you, how could you go from an IUI to IVF? Once again, just reverting back to patient mode, not knowing that one, that's probably the, those are the only two things that I could do. And two, it just makes sense. Like I mm-hmm. failed enough. Right. So, so let me ask you this real quick. When you had a biochemical, does that count as a miscarriage in your opinion? Or is it more of a failed something? In my opinion, yeah, but not, it's not supposed to. Uh, okay. Miscarriage is a clin- by textbook. You're supposed to actually have a sack or like a clinical evidence of mm-hmm. a pregnancy. Okay. Because yeah, I had a couple of those as well. And I do count them as four miscarriages total. Although right? a couple of them were... <laughs> Very early, but we talk about that a lot, you know, like a loss is a loss. It doesn't really matter how far along. So I was just wondering what your personal opinion was on it. Yeah. I I always tell my patients that just because it didn't make it that far, that doesn't mean it wasn't a pregnancy. So I personally, I do count them as a loss, especially when I'm trying to counsel my patients on next steps. I tell them that's a pregnancy. There's something else going on. And I wish somebody would have told me that, like, Mm -hmm. let me help you. Right. So Um, you're moving on to IUI next, right? Yeah. At this point. Okay. At this point, I add in the IUI, doesn't work. Then I switch clinics again. Then I beg them to do injectables. And everyone at this point is so scared because I'm now this like young 30-year-old. And they're right. like, we're not, we're not going to do injections on you. They're like, you have an AMH, which is a marker of your ovarian reserve. And typically it's between three to five. And here I am at like 17. Mm-hmm. I have like 60 eggs on each side. They're scared. They're so scared. I could see it in their eyes. I still remember I had a biochemical on one of them and the doctor called me and was like, there's going to be triplets in there. You're going to have to reduce. This is what you're going to do. Like he walked me through how I'm going to reduce and where I'm going to go. And it was just a biochemical. And then finally, I think that was that point. He goes, you you can't do any, like any, any of this. You're going to have to do IVF and we finally did it. It was March 2013, 2012. I don't even remember. It's but so it was funny I'm, that like, the, <laughs> the dates get muddy, right? As the years go yeah. on. <laughs> the night, that's how we had our son. But it took me a really long time. And I, I wish I had, and I wish I would have listened when they said, it's not going to work or change. But one of the downsides was no one really told me why. They just said, after three, it doesn't work. After three, it doesn't work. I was like, what does that mean? Tell me why. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what was this doing to you emotionally? Like, were you feeling depressed that it wasn't happening? Or like, what kinds of things were you and your husband going through? I love it to always me. touch on the emotional side of this as yeah. well. Anger. I was angry. Yeah. I, it, like, why wasn't it working? Like, it was supposed to work. And why wasn't it working? Mm-hmm. Um, he He's a problem solver by nature. So he wants to, he's like, let's fix it, you know? So he would rely on me because I'm the fertility doctor. So I would tell him, this is what we're going to do. And he'd be like, okay. So he was just kind of along for the ride. Okay. So then it finally did work with your son. Were you nervous during that pregnancy? Because that's another thing we talk about a lot at Fertility Rally is, you know, after you've suffered losses or gone through a lot, it's it's hard to relax even when you do get pregnant. Yeah, 100%. I think it was really, really hard to kind of, 
let go and be completely okay and know that things are going to be okay. Mm-hmm. So we, especially with him, like I remember, you know, like with your second, or at least with my second one, I was, it was much easier. Like I missed prenatal appointments. I rescheduled stuff, but I remember with him, like that came first. Like my, you know, he was our precious baby. Like everyone has to wash their hands. We can't leave the house when he's after he was born. Right. Like, yeah. So totally. It's, it's scarring because you constantly think about, man, we worked so hard, mm-hmm. you know, to have him, God forbid, like something were to happen. But yeah, it it is so scary. I think the worst part is, and I don't think this will ever leave, like you don't really get to enjoy. Like I remember thinking of like people making their nurseries and I, I was constantly waiting for something to go bad. And I was like, I'm not going to make my nursery and I'm not going to do this. And mm-hmm. We're just going to wait. Yeah, 100%. I know exactly what you mean. Then you had your daughter. So what was the, between your son and your daughter, what happened? I was breastfeeding my son until a year and we finished in a year and I was like, not even a year, until six months, they said, you need to let your body heal. Mm -hmm. So at the six month mark, I started pumping and in between and freezing and got a, you know, this crazy mm-hmm. fertility patients. I feel like we all do this. I had a deep freezer in every garage we possibly could po- even stay at for a day. My mom's house, our house. Uh-huh. So I froze enough milk and I started weaning. And I guess sometime in between then I ovulated and was pregnant even before I knew it. So finally went to my doctor after I stopped feeding saying, okay, we're ready to do IVF again. And I went to the same doctor and without no, without thinking I was placed on Provera and that's my fault. Cause I was like, Oh yeah, yeah. You know, like at this, now, now I'm a fellow at this place. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I take Provera. It doesn't work. And I take it for another two weeks and it doesn't work. And they're like, Oh, it's because you're breastfeeding. Let's get you in for a scan and blood work. And I remember this was like March, 2015. And so they're scanning me and they start going up like really high in my belly. And I was like, what are you scanning? And they're like, oh, you're pregnant. And I was like, excuse me? And they're like, yeah, you're like, and I was pretty far along. I was in my second trimester. Oh my gosh. Yeah, already. And I didn't know. And I kept taking Provera to get a period and no period. And here Whoa. I was. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So what did that feel like when you got that news? Oh my God. It was like, I felt almost felt ungrateful for being scared. Cause I was like, I didn't expect this. How am I going to have two such little kids? And this is happening much sooner. I don't know if I'm ready. And I truly felt so ungrateful because here I am, like I wanted a baby, but you become so used to the mechanical aspect of IVF and like planning mm-hmm. that this unpredictability threw me for a loop. Mm-hmm. I almost missed the planning of IVF. And I was like, I had a plan. This is what we were going to do. Like, we're, why is this wrench in my plan? So it felt interesting. Much, yeah. It felt much better though, not being on meds and right. being almost halfway done with your pregnancy felt amazing, but not good because I was not ready. I was really scared. I was more yeah. scared and sad that I didn't get to enjoy this baby that I'd like so longed for. And I had like, I wanted his milestones to be done and I wanted him to be like over two years old, you know, like these, that I guess the scarring of infertility never leaves you. And I, I wanted him so bad that I felt like I was taking away from him. Like I was doing him a disservice. That's I'm so glad that you said that. Cause I do think that it's exactly right. The scarring of infertility never leaves you. And so many of us know yeah. that I still, Honestly, Ruhi, like I still get real like physical reactions to like 
a Pampers commercial or something like that. That was like so triggering when I was going through it. It still makes me feel triggered to a certain hundred percent. I literally, like, I was just thinking about this. Like when people announce like baby showers or their pregnancies, I, I think about those moments, how I felt like, I remember like somebody announced their pregnancy and I was so mad. And I, took it out of my poor husband. He like walked in, like asking what he, what I want for dinner. And I like went crazy. It's like dinner. Who's thinking about dinner. She just announced her pregnancy. He goes, so like, you're sad because she's happy. It's like, Oh my God. I was like, how dare you say that? You know, like nothing totally. that came out of his mouth could have been right. But yeah, completely, completely. <laughs> so how far apart are your babies? They're less than two years apart. They're okay. about a year and a half. Okay. Okay. So can we talk about what's happening with you now? Yeah. So because of that feeling of, I was, you know, like taking away from my kids that I've so longed for. And then I think it made it easy. I was like, okay, I have one boy, one girl I'm done, you know, and let's not talk about the price of fertility treatment. Right. Uh, all of those, I remember being a fellow and I would go in and they'd be like, follow some like thousand dollars. I was like, thousand dollars. You're like, can I get a deal? I know. I was like, this fellow, please give me one for free. Really? <laughs> you think you could swap like trade, like I'll get, I'll find you a, this kind of thing. If you swap me with that. That's probably not very ethical, right? <laughs> no, but yeah, that's exactly how I felt. I was like, man, this sucks. So we're like, you know, we're good. This It was tolling. I had like all sorts of reactions to these medications. And, you know, you can't get lucky twice. It can't happen naturally again, I guess. You know, that was my one lucky, wonderful little baby. So we actually were like, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And we kind of stopped. And then... I randomly checked my blood work a couple of, um, a couple last year, two years ago. I don't even remember when I did it. Two years ago. I know what year is it, right? Yeah. (laughs) It's COVID through literally through my life. I feel like I'm stuck in March, 2020 until the world comes back to normal. Totally. (laughs) But I remember like I had poor equality. So one of my nurses like, let's just check your FSH, make sure you're okay, just in case you still want your third. And that's something I really tell my patients that, you know, I remember being in the heat of things and when the doctor would say, what do you want? Like, what does your family look like? Or how many kids? And we weren't having those conversations then there. It was more like, how many do you want? One or two, you know? And I remember was like, God, just give me one and I won't be greedy. And then from one, it became God, just give me two. I won't be greedy. Um, But my, my ideal, like when I grew up, I always envisioned myself having three little kids. And I guess that idea never left me. So, and I always would talk about it with my nurses and you, you know how we're at BIOS. It's like a family. Everyone's in everyone's business. So she's like, let's just check your FSH. I know you want three kids. So I was like, okay, let me just check it. And it came back even worse than it ever was. And I knew I had really bad eggs. So she did not, she was like, okay, you don't get to pick because you're not going to do it. You're starting. This is your calendar. This is what you're doing. You're taking it. We're freezing them. I don't care when and how, and if you want to use them, but they're, we're going to freeze them. Wow. I love that, that somebody kind of was like, here's what's happening. <laughs> Cause yeah, it, sometimes I, it's, do you find it so hard to sometimes make your own decisions? Like I yes. remember thinking, I just want someone to tell me what to do. Yes. hundred, hundred percent. And I'm so glad she did. I'm forever grateful because had she not done it, I could hundred percent see like me, like when the dust settles and my kids are older saying, man, I really wish I had that third. Cause I really do. I want three. So we froze our embryos and then once again, the time is never right. Right. So 
I was like, I just need time. I just need time. And I had these milestones that I would set for myself and I'd keep meeting them. And she would keep asking, are you ready? Are you ready now? What about now? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I want, she was like, okay, this is what you're doing. And we kind of started prep in December and looking. And um, I've always had a thin lining issue, even with my son where the uterine, like the middle of the uterus where the embryo implants never got good enough. But I thought at that time, it's because I'd done so many rounds of Clomid and so many rounds of Letrozole and kept having these biochemicals that it was because of that. Cause those kind of, those can cause thin lining, but I guess it wasn't. And I never followed up after because then I had my daughter and then didn't really go back to testing fertility or looking at my lining aspect. But since December, we were trying and tracking and trying to figure out what to do. Tried natural cycles because I have this horrible progesterone allergy also, and it wasn't working, got canceled, tried different form like the estrogen, didn't work, canceled. Then I took a break just to kind of regroup and took a little vacation, got my COVID vaccine, took a month off Uh and tried a random protocol that she suggested. And it, I mean, it got me close. It got me to, you wanted at at least eight millimeters between a seven to eight, ideally eight or above. For the lining? For the lining. Okay. Yeah. And it got me to 7.2 millimeters. I asked my sonographer to give me a grade and I'm competitive, as you can tell. And I was like, what do I get an A, B, or C? And she was like, you get, you get a B. And she saw my face. She's like, okay, a B plus. And I was like, I'm so sad. <laughs> like, you're putting my beautiful embryo on a B. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but it, I guess it was the best as um, my lining could get. And so we did. We just did a transfer. We've been trying since December. But I guess this is the first time that I actually was really compliant and followed what she said. I was, I've been very non-compliant. You know, uh-huh. sometimes doctors make the worst patients and you think you know better. And um, clearly I did not. Uh, so this was know. like a couple of days ago that you had the transfer, yeah. right? So thank yes. you for, for sharing this with us because it's such fresh news. But how do you deal with like the two-week wait as, a, you know, you just said doctors make the worst patients, which I think is so interesting because I love hearing the perspective of doctors who are going through this. So how, what are you doing to get through it? Distractions. I I think that's the, for me, I need to stay distracted. If I'm not distracted, I will, I literally opened a pregnancy test this morning and I'm like, no, are you crazy? Like, what are you doing? It's like just a couple of days ago, stop doing it, put it away right now. And I like had to talk myself out of it. Uh, (laughs) Were you able to talk yourself out of it? Yeah, I sure was. Oh my God. I was like, this is going to drive you crazy. Don't even start. Don't get on that crazy train just yet. Right. Um, I was on that train. I had thousands and thousands of pregnancy tests like everywhere in my house. Mm-hmm. So I, I put it away. And I think distractions, not thinking about it works for me. Staying very occupied. I like to shop. So shopping really helps. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing. But yeah, just working. And when I'm not busy, like I realized, I'm like, why did I think about that this morning? And it's because, oh, I didn't have to get up and go to work. Like yesterday I was on call. I went to work and not once did I think about it, but all day I haven't been able to stop thinking. It's so cool to show that like, even as an REI, you're so human and you're going through the same thing as your patients are going through, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I just think it's such a cool perspective. I guess the last thing I would want to say, other than that, I'm so rooting for you and I hope this works out. What kind of advice would you give to somebody who might be listening to this, who's just starting out on their journey? Like maybe they've you know been trying to get pregnant for a short time and they're not like, 
what do you say to people or somebody who comes into your office and is just like feeling defeated and not sure where to turn? I always tell my patients that no one, no one wants to come to a fertility doctor, not even me. And I'm a fertility doctor. Like this is a last. <laughs> I <time>. love you. <laughs> That's so good. Right. This is, I'm like, no one wants to be here, but if you educate yourself and why you're here, and if you make it more of a project, like proactive, like this is how me and my partner are going to build our perfect family, like our ideal family on our time without stress. I think it really shifts the conversation instead of the hardest part that was so hard for me with my son and that made it unbearable. Like I hated it was I wanted it so bad and I wanted it yesterday and I did not want to see a doctor. And this was literally my last ditch effort. And by the time I actually got the courage to see somebody, I was done. Like I was trying to do everything at home and I tell patients, like, I'm glad, like, you know, and you'll see, like, when I take histories, they'll add in, well, we tried one year, but we didn't really try. And then the next year we tried them, but we only added in ovulation predictor kids, like six months. And then I stopped my vitamins. And in that, what I'm really unwrapping is that you don't want to be here. And you want me to tell you, you don't have to be here because you haven't completely done what you need to do at home. And I think that idea of saying, and I, I have to tell myself this too, like I need to be here, but I'm here for a good reason. I'm going to get what I want at the end and just letting go will make it so much easier and shifting our mindset. It's not, it's not as easy, but acknowledging it really helps because acknowledging my like, Hey, I need to be here. It's not as easy as Dr. Javamoni said, I'm not going to pop that pill. And that's not going to be me at least now at that time, really, I, I needed somebody to tell me that. And I don't think not my, not that any doctors are bad and every doctor practiced differently and no one, but no one was telling me that no mm-hmm. one said, why don't you want to do IVF? I, I mean, if they would have asked me, I would have said, well, this is what this doctor told me. She said, I have a lot of eggs. Why am I not getting pregnant? Like help me understand the why, and maybe I'll do what you want me to do. But no one told me my why they mm-hmm. just said, it fails three times. It's not going to work. Like, what does that mean? All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Ruhi, thank you so much for sharing your story with me. Guys, definitely check her out on Instagram at Ruhi Jelani MD. And also check out Vios, who sponsored our episode today. So thank you, Vios. Also, one more reminder that Fertility Rally Live is April 17th. If you want more info or to find out who is going to be some of our incredible speakers that day, you can go to fertilityrally.com to get tickets, or you can check out our Instagram at Fertility Rally. So we hope to see you guys there. It's going to be an incredible event, tons of giveaways, tons of education, entertainment, empowerment. It's all the things we're working so hard to make it the best day for you. So come and join us and feel supported and know that you are not alone, no matter what you're going through. All right. Talk to you next time.